Almighty God, these things are the holiest words that we could handle gathered as the people of God this morning. We ask, Almighty God, that you would please give us ears to hear and hearts able to receive the good news that is spoken from the cross. Please, Lord God, let the anointing of the Holy Spirit rest upon me, the preacher of the word this morning, that the words I speak would come from your heart of love for your people, and that through the power of the Spirit, they would bring life and transformation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we experienced uh, what I would refer to as liturgical whiplash. Uh, We began outside shouting Hosanna, praising God, waving palm branches in our hands, coming in, singing glory, laud, and honor. And then we come to this passion narrative, which is the bleakest and perhaps the most tragic thing that has ever been penned on paper before. Indeed, I think it is. But we need that kind of whiplash. We need that kind of uh, movement from joy to all of a sudden the starkness of the crucifixion because our familiarity with the account of the passion of our Lord, while not exactly breeding contempt, certainly numbs us to the enormity of what is transpiring here. We need to hear with new and fresh ears what's going on because we've heard this story so many times we think we know it. One of the ways of overcoming our familiarity, familiarity with, uh, with this story, to overcome our over-familiarity with this story, is to carefully attend, to listen to the details of the narrative. And so this morning, I want to particularly focus, I want to examine the interaction between Jesus and the criminals who are crucified with him. And through that interplay, through that conversation, I think that the heart of the gospel is unfolded. The good news of God's conquest of evil and restoration and redemption of the whole world is expressed here in this interplay on the cross. To get there, though, we need to remember how Jesus' ministry unfolds. It actually begins with his baptism in the Jordan River. We know the story. Jesus goes to be baptized. We know that uh, he goes to be baptized with John by John the Baptist. And, and John says to Jesus, Lord, I have need of be, be, being baptized with you, and yet you come to me to be baptized. And Jesus says, let this happen, that all righteousness be fulfilled. And in doing that, what he's doing, even though Christ had no no sins to need remitting, Jesus identifies with all of broken, fallen humanity. What he is saying by going into those waters of baptism is, I am at one with my broken, fallen, rebellious people. I've come to connect with them in order to save them. And from that point on, Luke goes out of his way to show that Jesus welcomes and interacts with the worst segments of society. So instead of acting like a good rabbi and avoiding spiritually contaminating contact with sinners, Jesus is constantly touching and talking to tax collectors and whores and the common unclean people of the land. Back in Luke 5, Jesus actually goes out of his way to choose a tax collector, a tax collector, a traitor to his own Jewish people to be one of his closest disciples. 
In Luke chapter 7, to the shock and dismay of his Pharisee host, Jesus allows his feet to be anointed with the tears and the perfume of a sinful woman. If this man really were a prophet, he would know the kind of woman who was touching him. In Luke chapter 7, I mean Luke chapter 10, Jesus actually uses one of the most despised people that uh, a, a Jew could speak of, he, a detested Samaritan, as the ideal example of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. The Samaritan is lifted up as the one who knows how to love his neighbor as himself. And in Luke chapter 15, when the good religious people complain that Jesus welcomes tax collectors and sinners and even shares meals with them, Jesus begins to tell them a series of stories that deal with how God loves the lost. And so he tells the story of the lost coin. He tells the story of the lost sheep. And he ends it with that beautiful story of the lost son, the prodigal son. He shows that he, he wants to show God's special love and concern for those who are so lost and covered with shame that there is no hope for them. And finally, here in Luke chapter 23, Jesus' identification with sinners, with evildoers, is complete. He is nailed up. Think about this. Jesus is nailed up between two convicts, between two criminals. And friends, that's the way God is. That's the gospel. God is willing to go this low to save. He is willing to just keep humiliating himself, to crawl through the sewers of human depravity, searching, seeking for just one more person who will accept his offer of forgiveness. And while he is hanging there on the cross, the rulers, the religious elite, the good, the good moral people scoff at him. Listen to what's going on. He's there between two thieves, and this is what they say. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And then the soldiers take up the same taunting theme. And finally, one of the convicts, now look, how, how humiliating is that? To have a criminal who is literally being executed beside you to start insulting you. And one of the convicts sneers at him, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, here's the thing that's happening. What the rulers, the soldiers, and the sneering criminal cannot see is that Jesus is, in fact, listen, he is, in fact, saving others right now. At that very moment, hanging between heaven and earth. That's what he's doing. He is saving. He is saving others precisely by the fact that he is not willing to save himself. And Jesus just keeps on saving. Even while he is dying, he is pouring out God's love and forgiveness. It's in Luke's gospel that we get that, that wonderful statement from Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know what, not what they do. And in that willingness to be with us in our deepest shame and to love us unconditionally, listen, in that willingness to connect with us, to come to us in our deepest shame... To love us unconditionally, there is transformation. Now, so, some of us need to hear this this morning. I want you to listen to me very closely. Um, some of us think our shame is a barrier 
between God and us. Jesus, listen, clothed himself with shame so that shame would not be a barrier. Whatever it is you're ashamed of right now, let me tell you, there is nothing more shameful than being stripped naked, beaten, and nailed up for public display on a cross. Jesus clothed himself with shame. And you this morning who feel ashamed need to know that Jesus has taken your shame upon himself. And you do not need to cling to that anymore. It does not define you anymore. As a matter of fact, if you're thinking this, if you're thinking, if God, if you only knew, as if he doesn't, if you only knew what I've done, you could never forgive me. If you're thinking that, let me tell you what that actually is. That's a form of arrogance. Because God was willing to humiliate himself and cover himself in shame to save you. What are you ashamed of? Jesus bears that on the cross. What makes you cringe every time it comes to your memory? Jesus bears that on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He transforms our shame to salvation. He transforms our guilt to forgiveness. He transforms death into life. Now, here is the amazing thing. Here is the power of God at work. Here is the light of God breaking into the darkest hour this world has ever known. The, the repentant evildoer sees something that no one else sees. The repentant evildoer sees something that no one else in this moment sees. Now, over Jesus' head, there is a sign nailed to a cross. And it says this, nailed to the cross. It says, this is the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate and the Jewish leadership and the soldiers and even the blaspheming criminal on the other side all see this sign, this titleist, as a sarcastic, humiliating taunt but not the repentant criminal. Somehow he sees that Jesus really, now think about it. He sees that sign and he sees that Jesus on the cross really is king. Somehow he sees that the cross does not put the lie to Jesus's kingship. Instead, he sees that the cross is not a gibbet. It's not a scaffold for Jesus. It is a throne for a king. His kingdom is not ending here. It's just beginning here. And so that thief says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And like Jesus has done every time someone has cried out to him from the beginning of his ministry, when everyone seemed to love this new rabbi to the end when he has been rejected and crucified, Jesus offers new life, a new beginning. Jesus offers salvation to the one who would call out to him. And he says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And you know, in this moment on the cross, this, this holy and poignant moment on the cross, we see the gospel crystallized into its purest form. The thief realizes that Jesus really is Lord, really is Messiah, really is the only one who can save him. 
and he is willing to come to Jesus on God's terms, not on human terms. Human terms sound like this. Come down off the cross and get us out of this fix. But God's terms are humility, surrender, honesty about who we really are. There's no evasion, no self-justification, no comparing ourselves with the other guy who was a little or maybe even a lot worse than us. No claiming victim status, just this. I deserve this. We are getting what we deserve. This man is innocent. I deserve this. I am a sinner. But please, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your glory. And now as we begin, when we pass through, as you, Jesus, and I go through this moment of death together, don't let go of me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. St. Saint Theodore of Studius wrote these lines, beautiful lines. How splendid the cross of Christ. It brings life, not death. Light, not darkness. Paradise, not its loss. It is the wood on which the Lord, like a great warrior, was wounded in hands and feet and side, but healed thereby our wounds. Now listen what he writes. A tree had destroyed us. Do you remember the beginning of the story? It began in a garden with a tree. A tree had destroyed us. A tree now brought us life. Jesus is on the tree of life to save us. And on that tree, he bears your shame. He bears your sin. He bears the things that you look back on and cringe, and it might have happened a long time ago, like, I don't know, 8 or 9 o'clock. And if you will come to him on his terms, this tree will give you life. Jesus, remember me. Jesus, remember us when you come into your kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.